if there's a Bitcoin ETF that, that then trades on a major exchange, more people can, can essentially access it than, than they would if they're not willing to buy over-the-counter products. And so it, it should increase overall demand. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin capital of the world. How are you all? How's your week going so far? Did you go and listen to my show with Willie earlier this week? That's an absolute banger. Make sure you do go and check it out. The Bitcoin price is bouncing around. As I was about to record this, it looked like we we're about to break through 60,000 and then it's just dumped 3,000. Bitcoin doing what Bitcoin does. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I have Lynn Alden back for our monthly macro review. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up today, we have Kraken. And after sponsoring the show for more than two years, this is Kraken's last show. So let's send them off with a massive bang. Jesse and Kraken have been instrumental in supporting the growth of what Bitcoin did. And I will always be grateful to them and their team. Whenever I've traveled, traveling around the world, recording interviews, the Kraken team has always come out for a drink and to make me feel welcome in the cities I've been in. Big love, big thanks. And for the last few years, I have been using Kraken for buying and selling Bitcoin specifically at kraken.com or via their mobile app. They do also have a massive suite of products, including their OTC desk, futures, margin trading, and of course, a crypto watch. Now, I wish the company a massive and continued success. They are going to continue to be huge, doing amazing things for the Bitcoin industry. And also, just thanks again, Jesse. Big love, man. Thank you for everything you've done and to everyone over at Team Kraken. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And next up is my good friends over at BlockFi who had a massive announcement before Christmas. It's getting closer. It's getting close. The BlockFi Rewards Visa credit card is coming very, very soon. Yes, you're going to have the ability to stack sats with every card purchase with a market leading 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin. This is so exciting. And also, they've opened it up to everyone now. The public waitlist is open. Anyone, regardless of whether they have a BlockFi account or not, is eligible to join. So if you want to find out more, please do head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Ledger. And just to let you know, we are planning a show with a couple of people from Ledger at the moment to answer your questions, because I know some of you have got specific questions for Ledger. So that will be coming up. Keep an eye out for that. Now, I've been a Ledger customer for, I think it's just over four years now. It was back at the start of 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I am still using that device today. Now, I've told you before, I love it because the device is so easy to use, but I also love it because it connects to Ledger Live, which is their application for safely managing your Bitcoin. And if you're an Android phone user, you can also use that and connect it to your Ledger Nano S to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Okay, so on to the show today, and I am joined by the amazing Lynn Alden. I know you all love her as much as I do. We're here for our monthly macro update. Now, last month, Lynn and I got into bond yields, and after that show, I had some more questions, so I asked Greg Foss to come on and go through them with me in more detail. If you haven't listened to that show, definitely go back and check that out. It was a monster, and in this episode, we pick up from there. 
I asked Lynn about what has changed in the bond market since we last spoke, but we also get into inflation, the GBTC premium, and what seems like an inevitable Bitcoin ETF. Also, loads of you have been sending me questions to ask Lynn. Now, please don't keep doing that because I can't guarantee you I will ask her, but because some of you did, I did put a couple of those questions to her. Now, I hope you enjoy this one. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can jump into my Telegram group or you can hit me up at hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Just also another quick note, I'm going to be at the Bitcoin MIT Expo, which is coming up this weekend on April the 3rd and 4th. It's completely free and online. It's always a great conference with lots of great speakers. And I'll be there interviewing Andrew Polstra and Lisa Nagu from Blockstream. They've also got Sailor, Dan Hell, Jameson Lott, Jimmy Song, Peter Willey, and a lot more. So head over to mitbitcoinexpo.org to register. And last couple of notes, neveredit.com. Please do sign up there to receive my newsletter. That's your daily dose of tech, macro, and Bitcoin. And also, just to let you know, Defiance is going to be taking a break for two months. We're going to be relaunching in June. It's going to be called Hijack. Similar with Never Edit, that's going to become Hijack News. We are putting everything under the Hijack brand. Keep an eye out for all of that. Outside of that, have a great week, and I will see you all on Friday. Lynn, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am really good. Uh, I've got something to tell you. Um, What's that? So, remember last month when we were talking about yields, and afterwards you sent me that chart uh, with the yields going up, essentially breaking. And I was like, Wow, like reading the comments about it as a disaster. But I was like, in my head, I was like, I don't actually understand why this is bad because surely if yields are going up, this is great. There's better interest rates, you know, people are going to be making more money. And I then had a session with Greg Foss and in preparation, I actually went and did some reading. And what I didn't realize is that with the, the bonds, there's this whole, they were constantly being repriced, being bought and sold in this market. And I didn't realize that if the bond yields are going up, all the old bonds are becoming, they're losing value at the same time. I had yeah. no understanding of that. So I just like nodded and agreed with you. I'm not thinking, shit, I don't understand this. <laughs> yeah, and there's, and there's a couple levels there because one is people on those long bonds lose value, existing yeah. holders. I mean, people that are buying now get a better deal. And then two, it ripples into other asset classes as well. And so it's one of those things where normally higher interest rates would be a good thing. It helps, it helps basically... Mm. Keep keep a time value to money. It's it's a really important thing to have. Uh, but because they've driven interest so low, uh, we've had such a buildup of debt, and then therefore when those industries try to rise, when you have extremely high debt levels, that causes also all sorts of solvency problems, liquidity problems that are important mm-hmm. to watch out for. And then two, because we have equity valuations that are so high, especially in the growth and tech stocks, uh, you know, so those are are. If you do the analysis of like discounted cash flow analysis, and you're, you're trying to determine what is your discount rates. So what is your what is your expected rate of return? You yep. know, if if you're in an environment where treasuries are yielding five percent, you 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 expect a pretty high return for those equities, and so you're willing to pay a lower price for them. But if treasuries are one percent, you're willing to pay a higher valuation for those tech stocks because you're you're doing that comparison. So suddenly, when when treasuries start rising, you're like, wait, well now I got to pay less for these tech stocks. And so you start to get kind of a sell-off in some of those really expensive names. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things where once you start to learn a little bit, you start to get your head around it, you start to see how all the moving pieces work together. And look, I'm no way near there yet, Lynn. But I think what, what it's helped with me is when I read your monthly report now, rather than glazing over most of it and going, I've got no idea what this is about, I'm starting to understand. I'm starting to, like, the pieces of the puzzle are starting to make sense 
How is all interconnected? Well, thank you. I've learned from you. Learning from the best. How you been anyway? What's, what, what, where are we with bond yields? What, what, what has happened this last month? Uh, so lately we've been consolidating. Uh, and okay. so we, we, got that, we got that pretty big breakup. Uh, and then they did continue higher from there. Uh, more lately, they've been they've been uh, kind of going sideways, and so we're below the high level. We got we got well over 1.7 percent on the on the U.S. 10-year. Uh, now we're down in the 1.6 percent something range. So we've had somewhat of a consolidation. We also had a, an FOMC meeting, which is where the Fed comes out every six weeks and, and says what they're going to do in terms of monetary policy. Uh, and so this was it, it was a bigger one than normal because there are a couple of lingering questions. One was that. With yields pushing up and with inflation expectations pushing up, the market started to expect that the Fed might hike rates sooner than they said before they would. So before mm-hmm. the Fed said we're not we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, uh, and you know we're looking out multiple years with with keeping interest rates at zero, and that's that's the short end of the curve, right? That's the part that they directly control, and they're saying we're not even going to do anything. And the market's saying, well, like inflation's starting to get a little bit, uh, you know, spunky here. And so, you know, maybe the Fed will end up having to raise interest rates. And so they started to price that in. Uh, and so when Powell gave his press conference, they basically pushed back on that and said, no, uh, you know, we're really not planning on raising interest rates until uh, inflation actually runs a little bit hot. And so we're not worried about inflation expectations. Uh, and we're not worried about alternative ways to measure inflation. They're saying that the way we measure inflation, like the Fed measures inflation, uh, that they're not really willing to raise interest rates until the way they measure inflation is is well over 2% for a period of time. The other big thing was that there's a big open question about uh, the SLR uh, rule, which is basically this, you know a leverage ratio that applies to uh, banks uh, and so that was temporarily suspended for a year, meaning that banks could hold more treasuries and reserves than they otherwise could. And that allowed them to essentially help finance the, the U.S. deficit. That helped uh, uh, basically, if you look at back a year ago in March, the treasury market essentially broke. It became a liquid. Uh, they're basically forced sellers, not, not, you know, not enough buyers, especially for portions of the treasury market. And so the Fed had to come in and buy literally a trillion dollars of treasuries in three weeks. And they also worked with banks and said, okay, we're going to uh, take away this cap so that you can you know, temporarily have more treasuries and that'll help smooth things out. And so there were some questions about whether or not that's going to be extended. Uh, and so I think for a lot of us, me included, my, you know, our, our base case was they probably would extend it a little bit, uh, but they actually decided they would not extend it. But then they kind of did a middle of the road thing where they said, okay, we're not going to extend it. However, we're open to comments. Uh, we don't want anything to break. So, you know, like we're, we're willing to tweak it in the future if it starts causing an issue. And that, that, so they kind of took that middle of the road approach, which I found interesting. How do they measure inflation? Uh, core PCE. And so it's like, you know, they, they have a basket of goods uh, and then they factor out things like, you know, kind of things they view as cyclical, like energy costs and things like that. And so they're saying, what is what is the 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 the, the non-energy, non-food change in, in a basket of goods that they define? Uh, and there are all sorts of, you know, quirks about it. Like, you know, I, I, my understanding is that they use like, uh, you know, Medicare payment rates as their like, you know, definition of healthcare inflation. And so there's some wonky things in there uh, that, you know, overall probably allow them to to understate that a, a bit, especially if, if, if inflation is being driven by commodity prices. Uh, and so in general, that would be a slower moving indicator. Uh, and so it actually, sometimes it's it's higher than headline CPI. If, if you have a, you know, a month where you have like oil go negative, 
uh, or you know, basically, if if you have these kind of big, you know, declines in some of these more cyclical commodities, uh, and so you can actually have core CPI be a little higher. Whereas if you have the other way around, where commodities shoot up and gasoline's expensive, and people are actually, you know, having trouble driving as much as they want to because you know the, the gasoline's so high, well, that really won't show up uh, quickly in in core uh, PCE unless it persists long enough that then. You know, truckers, you know, basically start raising shipping rates, and then that trickles into you know stuff you buy on Amazon. And so it's 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 their particular way of measuring it. And so whether or not someone agrees or disagrees with it, at least you know that's how they measure it, and that's how they said they're going to handle monetary policy until that measure reaches certain numbers. Do, do you trust the rate though? Because because we've been told that we here in the UK that we haven't seen significant changes in inflation, but. Uh, I've sat down and talked to a couple of my friends, and we've been comparing certain things that have been going up in price, and we are seeing things, certain things that we buy go up 5 10 15%, all different types yeah. of things. Yeah, currently there's a huge anomaly, and I would say that, that they, I think they even admitted in their latest CPI report that they're having trouble collecting data. Uh, and so, and there's, and there's kind of like weird, like for example, if you look at rents in major cities, those have been down. And those factor pretty heavily into into some of these numbers. And so, if if you were living in New York City and your rent went down, that could potentially offset some of the fact that the other things went up. But if you're not living there, if if you know if your if your living standard didn't change and these other goods are going up, uh, then your personal infl- inflation rate is going to be notably higher, most likely than the baseline. And so, for example, I you know I, I did an exercise. Uh, it, was, it was before this this you know last six months of of kind of prices going up, uh, but I calculated my personal my household inflation rate over like a two year period, uh, and it was something like three percent or so, uh, which was higher than the the CPI uh, and the PCE would suggest it would be, but it was lower than some of like the the real alternative uh, ways of measuring it. Uh, but of course, everyone has their own basket of goods, and so their their own. Uh, inflation rate varies based on their on their basket of goods. And a general thing we've seen over the past uh, several decades uh, in developed countries is that services have gone up much faster than inflation. So healthcare costs, ed- educational costs, childcare costs, uh, car repair costs, things like that. Whereas goods have continued to go down or, or, or you know, basically undershot inflation. Uh, that's due to increasing technology. That's due to offshoring. That's due to automation. Uh, and so, for example, you can get a better computer for less cost. You can get a better TV for less cost. You can get a better car for like the same cost. And so, those have been deflationary. Uh, and so, if if you're a big consumer of healthcare, education, childcare, like who isn't, then your your basket could be you know pretty high. Yeah, my kids. We just got a letter from the school. My kids' education school fees have gone up. Uh, will be going up four point eight percent, which is the biggest rise in the whole time they've been either of them have been at the school i mean it's a massive rise i actually spoke to one of the teachers about it because i know him quite well and i was doing the collection and he said to me on the side that he said the main reason the cost of the fees is going up is to support the teachers pensions he didn't explain why but he said it's the pensions that's killing them well, a lot of them are underfunded and yeah. so i don't know about that that particular one but a lot of them they've not put enough money in their return expectations are too high, and going back to bond yields. So historically, pensions are conservative investors, right? They they want you know bonds in there, uh, and so back when bonds were yielding five percent, you could say, okay, our target rate of return is seven percent because we're hoping equities are going to yield nine percent, bonds are going to yield five percent. If we do a 50-50 split, we'll get seven percent, 
and it'll be good. And But then we say, okay, actually, just kidding, bonds are yielding 1.5%. And then it's like, well... Well, then I need then I need to be more equity focused, and then they get into like uh, hedge funds. They get into all all these kind of uh, different alternative investments. Some of them don't work out very well, uh, and so they basically have to go up on the risk curve. And many of them are unwilling to put more money in, and basically, you know, essentially admit that we're going to get lower returns. Therefore, we have to put more money in, or we have to reduce benefits. And so you have these kind of issues build up, and that's happening in multiple countries to different degree. I mean that that happens here in the United States. In fact, part of this recent bill they passed, the 1.9 trillion, uh, there is a section of it uh, for for tens of billions of dollars that helps shore up, uh, you know, kind of a, one of the pension systems. And so it's not directly related to COVID. It's not like a, mm. a COVID thing, but it's kind of like trying to to patch this this longer term issue. And another, and you know, going back to the inflation question to finish that up. So I I, I did a piece on inflation back in November, my my newsletter. Uh, I, I broke it down into different types of inflation. So you have asset price inflation, then you have uh, consumer goods inflation, and it largely depends on essentially money. If you if you increase the broad money supply by quite a bit, right? So if you go back to classical definitions of inflation, just an increase in the broad money supply is by definition inflation. Uh, and so often when people are arguing about inflation, they have different definitions, and then they're talking past each other. So without a doubt, there's been monetary inflation. We've had money supply increases. And then the question is, where does that money go? And the answer is, it goes into whatever scarce at the time. And whoever has the money, what are their needs? And so because we've had an increase in wealth concentration, right? So a lot of that money kind of pooled up in the, in the upper echelon, uh, you know, that a lot of that money went to financial assets. So things like art, wine, mm-hmm. gold, uh, high-end real estate, uh, high-end cars, collectibles, uh, equities, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. Even bonds, bonds because yields went down, bonds went up in price. And so, you know, during that that long period of time, we had significant asset price inflation. Whereas, for example, we were in a period ever since about 12 years ago where we've largely been in a, a state of global commodity oversupply. So our oil has been, you know, it's, it's lower than it was 12 years ago. Uh, you know, uh, copper is lower than it was 12 years ago, even though it's been up a lot lately. It's still lower than it was. It's not at all-time highs, for example. Uh, and if you look at a basket of commodities, they've actually been relatively cheap, and that that's kept a number of, of basic goods down. And so more of the inflation has been in the asset price side. And that causes an issue, if you go back to yields, say say the housing market, right? If you want to buy a house, you know, uh, my my dad, uh, he was he was uh, old, an older gentleman when I, when he had me. So he he was basically old enough to be my 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 grandpa. But he he bought his first house like he was like a police officer and just like in his twenties and just like bought a house like it's just like not a big deal. Yeah. And whereas now and so, and the price was like silly even when you account for inflation like he, it just basically the 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 ratio of that the value of that house compared to his salary even without a college degree was a very manageable way to buy a house. Whereas now, because we've driven up asset values, including real estate values, it's harder to buy a house. And the only mitigating factor is that because interest rates came down so much, uh, mortgage payments haven't really gone up in the same way that that housing prices have gone up. So if your house price doubles, but your mortgage rate is like half the cost, that basically makes it so that you know your your, your mortgage is more manageable. But that also shows the concern when, when yields start rising, even from pretty low levels, when housing prices are expensive and people are this leveraged, uh, that makes those houses harder to afford. Yeah, I, mean, I remember my parents telling me the first house they ever bought, because I could never understand it when I was a kid, when she, they told me this, the first house they bought was £2,000, I think. And I could never yeah, get my like, head around that. Yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, another question on this that's been bugging me or has been on my mind is 
Uh, I've got a lot of friends uh, who are in lockdown, and we're about to come out of lockdown. And most of my friends have managed to keep their jobs and been working from home. And most of them are saying the same kind of thing, that they've actually managed to build up quite good savings because they've, they've not... You know, all they can do is have takeaway, right? They can't go on holiday. They can't buy... You know, they could buy a car, but they can't really. So everyone's saying they've got a lot of money. Uh, I know what British people are like. Once the um, once they let us out, we're all going to go mental, straight down the pub, on holidays, everything we can do. Could that... Um, that will obviously lead to a sudden, like, increase in demand on certain things. Would you expect that to lead to some kind of, like, uh, delayed rising inflation? It certainly can, yeah. And so, uh, you know, we've had a period, especially there's base effects, right? So back in April uh, of last year, 2020, that was kind of the the worst period. So no one was buying anything, uh, you know, other than, like, Netflix subscriptions if they didn't have one. Uh, And (laughs) so, you know, that was like a, a... yeah, and so that was back then. That was a dip in CPI. Whereas yeah. now, when we come into April and May, when you do year-over-year comparisons, those are going to be pretty high headline numbers uh, for many countries. Uh, and so uh, there's that hurdle to get over. And then two, yeah, if you have a large number of people suddenly spending more money uh, on things that they couldn't spend on, uh, that can certainly drive up prices. I mean, for example, I, I haven't really, I haven't flown anywhere in the mm. past year. Uh, I, I normally would have done an international flight of some sort uh, last year, and that didn't happen. And so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly going to do one later this year. And it's, it's you know, uh, people, I think some people will do more than they otherwise would have. They might spend more than they otherwise would have. Those places, because some of the supply has been killed, they can raise prices and say, okay, like there's, you know, some of these weaker hotels and folded and, and some of the airlines took some of their planes out of, out of flight. And they said, well, there's less supply, so we're going to jack up prices. And so if that kind of happens all at once, that can certainly be a, an inflationary spike. And you also have to see what happens with energy markets. And so, because we went into this pandemic with a state of energy oversupply, mm-hmm. largely due to uh, American shale and, and Canadian shale, North American shale, uh, kind of th- that kind of rose over the past decade and kind of disrupted the global, you know, kind of OPEC s- supply issue that we, we've we've had for kind of history. Um, we we had a, a period of oversupply. A lot of it was unprofitable, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. we we just you know well, we we grew up on profitable shale, tons of oversupply. Uh, and so this comes around and kills, you know, demand for for you know the better part of a year. And so we, we basically had, yeah. Is, sorry, is it unprofitable because it's more expensive to get out the ground than you know through traditional wells? It's that's the thing. The math is wiggly, and and so and right. so what they promise is rarely what they deliver. And so basically, the way that shale works is there's less upfront cost, uh, but then more ongoing cost because basically it's it's like a bunch of smaller wells. So instead of say say you discover a massive like uh, you know deep 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 sea oil find, it costs like a ton of money to build to have that rig in place and to figure, and get all down there. But then once you put What's that huge that? capital cost in, the marginal cost of getting the rest of that up is really low. Uh, same thing with like oil sands in Canada, the huge upfront cost, and then once there, it's actually pretty pretty low. Whereas shale's the opposite, where it's on land. Uh, they, they, these techniques basically say that you can actually put a small amount of capital up front and then you get this well. But then what happens is that, that well quickly starts declining. And then you right. have to keep putting more and more and more money in. Uh, and it, it, it's like they, they never seem to be like consistently free cash flow positive. Uh, and so they basically the whole decade, if you look at the industry, uh, they didn't generate 
free cash flow. And, and so a lot of them don't pay dividends. Only the only like the top kind of blue chip sale companies are able to really kind of pay these consistent dividends. Right. Uh, and so it just, it's not been very profitable, but it, you, they've had enough, they've been able to raise enough equity from, I mean, sometimes those pension funds we talked about, uh, <laughs> but just all, all sorts of places have been willing to fund them and just kind of put endless, you know, just light money on fire, keep drilling and just not really getting returns for it. Uh, but now you have some, so some investors are just tired of losing money and they're saying, well, you know, I'm not going to invest in that anymore. And then two, you have ESG mandates. So people say, I'm not going to, so like the New York pension system says, we're not going to do oil investments anymore. And some sovereign wealth funds are saying, we're not going to do oil investments anymore. Uh, and so those companies are less able to just keep issuing equity and just keep drilling. And so they say, wait, we have to actually finance ourselves from selling oil. And therefore we have to be more conservative with our CapEx. Uh, and so we've had this p- thing where oil demand has risen as lockdowns have eased at the same time as a lot of that weak supply came off the market, uh, sometimes because CapEx projects were canceled uh, and just some of those wells kept going down in in, in usage. Uh, and so now it's a little bit more tight than it was. And OPEC, they can some of them can increase production, but they've also purposely kind of held it flat so that they, right. in their view, hopefully drive prices a little bit higher. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I'm planning on going mental. I'm going to go out. <laughs> We're actually already booked into the pub. Um, okay, I'll tell you another funny thing. I've actually got I've got viewer questions for you. <laughs> this has never happened before. People write it in going, can you ask Lynn this? Uh, I'm going to entertain it. Um, is it. This is going to be a bit of a jump to a completely different subject, but, but I'm going to ask anyway. The GBTC premium is negative. Now, I covered this with Zach. But I still didn't fully understand it. Can you explain to me why there is a premium and why it can go negative? Um, like, but just keep it as simple as you know, proper Pete five-year-old language. Yeah, sure. So actually, I would go back to, to pointing out what closed-end funds do. And so before okay. Bitcoin, we had closed-end funds, and basically they're they're different than an ETF. And so an ETF, uh, the fund manager, they they can issue more shares, they can reduce the number of shares very easily. And so it's very easy for market makers to like look at their list of, of stocks that that ETF owns, and they can do things like you know buy all of them and then short the ETF if if there's like a you know a a, a premium, uh, and they can redeem shares to basically uh, you know put a time limit on how long that premium can exist, and so they can arbitrage that down so that ETFs virtually have no premium or discount, uh, other than in extreme market events like March of last year, you had, you had some yeah. ETFs have so. Whereas closed-end funds are this are this actually this older vehicle, where you know basically I, I raise a bunch of capital, so I do an IPO and I build a company, but all that company is going to do is invest in a portfolio of stocks, and okay. so it's, it's a type of structure that is essentially like an ETF, uh, but it's a different structure, and there's no constant redeeming or, or creation of shares. It's just that I, I say I put a million shares out there, I got money and I invest in this, and those shares will trade hands, but I'm not issuing or redeeming them. So uh, I, I go out and invest and my investments do what they will and the market trades those shares. And but the, what the market is paying for that basket of stocks might not be the same amount as if you actually add up all those stocks together. The market cap of my company might be different than the actual portfolio value. Uh, and in fact, on average, the majority of closed-end funds do trade at a discount to NAV, meaning that you, know, you have this, this, this pile of stocks, this, this like basket of stocks, and the market is is paying like you know ninety percent of what it's worth or ninety five percent of what it's worth, 
And so they're actually they're actually trading between themselves at a discount. And part of the reason they do that is is because uh, you know that company generally has a, a fee, like an active management fee that they right. take out of. And so uh, it's often the case that that's like one percent a year. And so the market is saying, well, we're going to trade at a discount, and so we're basically going to factor out like five to ten years worth of your fee. And so uh, the only ones that end up trading for a premium, uh, especially for any length of time, are ones that are so unique that people are willing to buy into them, even though there's a premium to NAV. Like maybe there's a star manager, and they're saying, well, like you know, I'm paying a premium for it, but I think uh, she's going to do so well that I think that that it's fine for that. Other times, it's just kind of inefficiency. So a lot of those are, are done by retail investors, and they don't know what a premium is, and they're just buying it. And and so there's a variety of reasons why a fund either it could be really good or or just kind of markets weird. And so uh, uh, now GBTC comes along. You know they haven't allowed a, a Bitcoin ETF in the United States, and so they okay. We're going to be a trust similar to a closed end fund. We're going to hold Bitcoin, but they have no redemption mechanism. And so the, 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 the shares trade for what they will. They hold the amount of Bitcoin that they do. Uh, and, and, and so those can be separated. And because yeah. uh, you know, it's, it kind of falls into that category of people are willing to pay a premium for it because some people aren't tech savvy, especially you know, over the past several years. Yeah. They, don't, they don't know how to open a Kraken account, whatever the case may be. But they They're want not exposure. Up. Yeah, they want exposure. Many of them say, okay, I want to, actually, I want to hold it in my Roth IRA. Uh, and okay. so an American, basically, you're, you're a tax-free account, right? And you, you already have it at, a, at Fidelity, whatever the case may be. And you say, well, I'm going to hold Bitcoin in there. And so uh, by holding a GBTC in their tax-free account, uh, even though they're paying a premium for it, uh, they might say, well, I mean, I'm getting it tax-free. And, and so I'm fine with that. It's a, it's a good balance. And so that's been an attractive vehicle for a lot of people because they don't have to deal with, with another account. They don't have to deal with custody. Uh, and they're just saying, like, you know, give it to me. Uh, and so there were times where the premium became silly, and there were times where it, it became lower, but it was generally trading at a premium. But now we've seen more and more funds pop up. So you have you have uh, Skybridge, you mm-hmm. have uh, you know NYDIG, you have all mm-hmm. these kind of other institutions, and also just more and more people are kind of willing to open up you know major exchange accounts. Uh, there's other services like Swan Bitcoin, and there's all sorts of ways that that make it increasingly easy and cheap for people to access it. Uh, and there's just more education, more podcasting, uh, like what like what you're doing, and so it's easier for people to open up those accounts. And so overall, I think GBTC's competitive advantage has somewhat diminished, mm-hmm. uh, and and arguably that they're you know because they're charging like last I checked a two percent fee. I mean it's a pretty high fee, and some of these other options are lower fees. Uh, and so in some ways, that my view is that the market is saying your fees high. And so we're going to trade at a discount to NAV. That you know, if you're going to charge a two percent fee, we're going to we're going to pay less for those shares now because we could just go ahead and we could go buy into Skybridge, or we can go we can go to you know Kraken and and just kind of buy buy Bitcoin there and then not pay any fees on it other than the initial commission fee yeah. and and then the sale fee. Uh, and so that's taken that out. And what that did was there used to be an arbitrage where yeah. you know the the one way that GBTC made new shares was. If you were an accredited investor, you could go in and say, "Okay, I'm going to buy at NAV," uh, and so they got they got to basically, you know, buy at NAV. They would, they would GBTC would issue new shares, pull Bitcoin into that liquid fund, uh, and the only catch was that if you did it like that, you had a six month lockup period, so you couldn't yep. sell. Uh, and so the trade there was okay. You say, "Okay, this thing always trades at a premium. I can buy at NAV," uh, and in six months. 
I'll be able to sell it uh, and I'll be able to capture that premium. But let's say I don't know what direction Bitcoin's going to go. I mean, some of them would just buy it and hold it because they're bullish on Bitcoin. Other people say, I don't know if Bitcoin's going to go up and down. So what I'll do is I'll short Bitcoin and I'll buy into this at NAV. And then at the end of the six-month period, I don't care what Bitcoin did and my return will be the premium uh, that GBT's trading at because I'll just sell my, my shares and then I can do it again. I can do another six-month lockup. And so that was, it was bullish for Bitcoin because... Okay. Yeah, I get yeah, it. So Sorry. I'll tell you the bit that's clicked for me now is I didn't understand the shorting component because I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I just, I just didn't understand. It's a bit like if somebody on uh, BitMEX wants to go neutral and they've got a long, they take out a short exactly. and they're in a neutral position. They're essentially doing a neutral position, but they're capturing the premium. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That makes and sense. And so it's 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 nearly a risk free trade, uh, mm. and they can do it twice a year. And so if the average premium was like fifteen percent, they could get fifteen percent twice a year. And so that's like uh, you know better better than a thirty percent compounded rate with without almost any risk other than counterparty risk. If if GBTC's custodian gets blown up somehow or hacked, that's a risk. But like but basically besides those kind of tail risks, there's, there's you know you're not taking any kind of Bitcoin price risk. Uh, and so that was a very popular trade. And it also was good for Bitcoin because it, it sucked Bitcoin into this black hole. Like, it, you know, it basically, once they go into GBTC, they don't go out. And so um, it basically was this, this, this buying pressure. Uh, and now, but because of these increased competition, uh, that premium went away. And so therefore, there's no incentive to buy in at NAV, right? Because it's, when, you, when your lockup period ends, there's a good chance, you know, uh, that they're going to be worth less than they're worth now. Unless... You know, basically, there's there's much better ways to buy Bitcoin than to buy into GBTC, uh, you know, above current prices. Uh, and so um, that that trade dried up. Anyone who kind of was relying on that trade suddenly kind of you know might have a, an issue there now. But some of those lenders are smart, and so they did they they would position themselves so that we're only going to put a certain amount of capital in this GBTC trade. Uh, you know, they, they they any good one should have modeled like what happens if that goes away, and so we might. Yeah. Might have to lower interest rates, might have to do other things, but it's not like they're going to blow up. Now, there's potentially the other side of the trade. I mean, so one thing's that, you know, if a closed end fund gets to a very large discount to NAV, that makes it more attractive because you say, well, like I can, I can do that. And then there are some ways that those closed end funds can close that discount. And so before I said they don't really issue shares and stuff, uh, but they actually, they, as an exception, they can. They can say, well, our thing is now trading it at a 15% discount to NAV. Let's say, like, I, you know, there's a, I often use the example of an Indian fund. It's a, it's a, uh, they invest in Indian equities. They're often trading at below, at around 10% discount to NAV. If there's an unusual period where they're trading at 15% discount to NAV, the fund manager can say, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna buy back some of our shares, and and that helps close the gap. Uh, and if for whatever reason it trades at a premium to, to NAV, they could actually issue shares and they can kind of play that arbitrage. Uh, and so. You know they can they can buy some of the shares back to try to close that gap, uh, and then also if the United States ever allows a Bitcoin ETF, which it seems like the writing is on the wall that eventually you know there's so many people applying for one, Canada has one. It's really hard not to have one. Um, so if there's ever a, a Bitcoin ETF, if GBTC is able to convert into an ETF, that uh, that discount should go away, and so uh, people can do a thing now where they they buy GBTC at whatever discount it's at. Uh, and then they can they can you know short Bitcoin. They can have a neutral trade with the expectation that that in the long run that gap might go away. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about Bitcoin ETFs. But before that, I got a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's kick off with Exodus Wallet. 
now. As some as you know, my bank, Lloyd's, closed all my bank accounts down. I've been with them for 25 years, and they gave me 65 days notice. They're like, Pete, we don't want to do business with you anymore. We're closing down your accounts. I was like, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Lloyd. Thanks for 25 years of business. Now, luckily, I've been gradually preparing myself for this world. I'm increasingly running my business on Bitcoin. I increasingly get paid in Bitcoin, and I increasingly pay people in Bitcoin. And the only problem I had with this is my accountant was whinging at me every month saying, Pete, you don't keep any records. Who's this Bitcoin going to? What's it for? I was always a bit shit with it. So I needed a good wallet. I needed a solution to have these audits at the end of each month for my accountant. So when Exodus reached out to me, and they're like, Pete, you should try our wallet, and we want to sponsor your show. It was just the wallet I needed. The UX was perfect. So I was like, okay, Exodus, you got this gig. We can do this. So I signed up with Exodus, and if you want to check them out, please do. The wallet's amazing. You can head over to exodus.com to do that, or you can search for Exodus in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up is Casa. You know they are the very best in Bitcoin security. And some of you are making some great gains. And some of you still have not got your security shit together. What the hell are you doing? Do not screw this up. Do not lose your Bitcoin. You definitely want to check out Casa. I've been a customer for nearly a year now. Honestly, the peace of mind of having this is so good. Now with Casa, they do have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet. And that's only $10 a month. So what the hell are you doing with your life? Go check that out. With Casa Platinum, you get their 305 multi-sig, and with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best-in-class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And last up today, but never least, are my friends over in Estonia, sportsbet.io, who we love right now because they have agreed to give away a Lamborghini to one of the listeners of my show. We are working on a competition. We are figuring out the mechanics. We think it's going to be a game on one of their sites, perhaps their Bitcoin casino, and one of you will have the chance to win a Lambo. How cool is that? Now, with Sportsbet.io, you do have every market you could possibly be interested in. They've got football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, even esports. And because they're so badass, they accept Bitcoin. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. So do you think an ETF is coming? Because there is, was it like 17 applications out now? Of, and didn't, didn't Fidelity just apply for an yeah, ETF? I, I heard that Fidelity did, yeah. Yeah. And I so uh, I, I assume one's coming, and I, I admittedly don't know how it works when like, when everybody wants to, like, I don't yeah. know, I don't know, who, I don't know how they pick who gets to have one. I know that so, so for most asset classes, there are multiple competitors, right? So there are multiple yeah. gold ETFs. Uh, there are multiple, and they might have slightly different nuances. Uh, and usually, what happens, for example, if you look at gold ETFs, there's like the original one, uh, and that one's super liquid, right? So if you're doing option trades on that ETF, like that's the one you go to, but they can get away with charging a higher fee for that. Whereas other ones come along and say, hey, we're going to do the same product for half the fee. Uh, and so that's more attractive for long-term holders, but that'll generally be because it's a newer product, it's, it's a smaller product, it's less liquid. Uh, and so uh, you know, frequent traders and option users will generally stay away from that product and they'll stick with the older, more expensive, more established product. And so whether you're a buy and holder or you're a trader, which, you know, which one could be better? And then you can have other, other funds come out and say, okay, we're going to actually fully allocate our gold 
And so we're like, you know, better, but we're going to charge a pretty high fee. And so some people that are, you know, concerned with rehypothecation and things like that can buy into that fund. And so you have these different trade-offs between these different types of funds. And so you could see that to some extent in the, in the Bitcoin space. We have multiple ETFs uh, once they're allowed to, you know, use that asset class as an ETF. So whoever gets, uh, if it's one, everyone else is going to be so pissed off. Yeah. I, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't fully know the mechanism of, of how that selection process works and who's going to be allowed and who's not. You know the, first, the first big question is whether or not they let anyone. And, but I think eventually they have to. It's, yeah. it's hard to, yeah. Well, somebody put out a tweet, great tweet the other day. I think maybe it's Frank, Sh- oh, not Frank. I want to I read this because this actually felt like it was on the money. Fintech Frank, where are you, mate? It was something, oh, here we go. Given all the bullshit that's gone on with the meme stocks this year, if the SEC doesn't approve a Bitcoin ETF, they are either completely ignorant, complacent, or corrupt. <laughs> I thought that was pretty fair. I, I think it's fair, and and there's been like there's been good comparisons, like because one of the the ostensible things is like, oh, we're not going to allow BT, a Bitcoin ETF because it's too volatile. Uh, but there are there are there are like triple leverage ETFs that that blow up all the time. Uh, there are. There are like volatility ETFs that have this massive decay rate. Uh, there are all sorts of, you know, then now we have like meme stocks being grouped into an ETF and that, you know, it's just, it's just kind of this, this weird construction process and, and just kind of a, you know, kind of a questionable product to begin with. Uh, and so overall, there are a ton of, of weird vehicles out there. Uh, and so Bitcoin would by no means be the most volatile one. I think that they're, the, the concern they've been going with recently uh, and for a while, is that they've been concerned about market manipulation, that they want to make sure it's not a market that that a small number of individuals can manipulate. Uh, and so back when Bitcoin was smaller, it was easier for whales to manipulate it. Uh, but the bigger it gets, the 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 harder it is to move. Uh, you still see periods where you know there'll be like a an alert put out saying, oh, the, like uh, Gemini just got like a, a whale in, you know input. And I know like Willie Woo is yeah, always on yeah. Twitter saying like that's that's not what happened. You know, so I talked to him about ba- that yesterday. I talked to Willie about that yesterday, about them crashing the market, the the quant guys, because uh, that's twice they've done that. They did that with the F two F two pool data. Um, yeah. So, and, and unfortunately, that that kind of gives that that's like fuel for for the e- for the SEC to be like, oh, look, it's manipulated. Like that's why we have to hold off on an ETF for now. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, basically, the the extent that a market uh, could be kind of manipulated, especially you know the type of manipulation they care about is that short term stuff. If yeah. a, if a group of individuals could say, we want to we want to short it and then move the market and then get, you know, whatever they're going to do. Uh, that's, that's one thing that I think the SEC has, has reasonable concerns on. But really, it's, you know, like there's so many small stocks out there that can be manipulated. There's so many kind of weird vehicles out there that can be manipulated that Bitcoin would by no means be the problematic one. And so, yeah. and, and so I, I, th- I think eventually it's inevitable, uh, but we'll see. Do, 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 the FT, do the ETFs have to buy the underlying asset? Well, they they can have exposure in, in several different ways, and so uh, one example is that there are there are popular commodity ETFs, right? So there's an ETF that that follows a basket of um, agricultural products, right? And they don't they don't have giant warehouses of of grain and and, and soybeans. Instead, they use futures. Okay. Uh, and and same thing with some of those uh, oil ETFs. They don't they don't hold a lot of oil. They 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 buy oil futures, and some of them actually kind of blew up for that reason. So uh, basically, there's there's all and there are future experts that can go into way more than me. Uh, but basically, there's there if if oil's in a bear market, uh, if you look at the performance of those oil ETFs, 
they do way worse than oil. Uh, and it's it's the way that the futures worked as they rolled from one contract to another. They basically had this stepwise like downdraft in in their value. So if 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 oil were to say get cut in half, right? So it goes from you know sixty dollars a barrel down to thirty dollars a barrel, and then it say doubles again, so it goes back up to sixty dollars a barrel. You would expect that the ETF also got cut in half and then doubled. Whereas really what happens is like the ETF like goes down like a little bit more than half, and then only comes back like part of the way. And right. so that had like a permanent capital loss based on the fact that they're using futures rather than holding giant tanks of oil. And it partially comes down to uh, you know the stock to flow ratio of that commodity. And so uh, gold is one where uh, at least some of them like Sprott can can hold. They're like we have an actual vault, the metals in the vault, uh, and that's how we're doing this product. Uh, other ones a uh, little bit more questionable. They can say we have a vault, but we also use a little bit of derivatives around the margin because you know whatever the case may be. Uh, and so it really depends on the type of of asset that they're doing. And so uh, there are there are uranium holding companies, so that's got a pretty high stock to flow ratio, so they can actually physically hold it. You know, gold, silver, uranium. Uh, whereas if you get into those other those oil, copper, grains, uh, you're, they're almost never going to be holding. It. It's going to be futures based. Now Bitcoin's one where I mean, obviously they can hold it. I mean, it, something like Fidelity can be like, hey, we have our deep cold storage solution, and here's an ETF. Uh, now they also could do other options as well. They could do options and futures to basically synthetically have that exposure, and that might be one of the differentiators between different types of of Bitcoin ETF. Like people can right. say. You know, I, I like fidelities, but I don't like such and such because I like the way that they custody it more. And and so that could that could open up some differentiation, either in terms of you know so some of them might be more expensive, but but arguably better security, as an example. Okay. Well, I think they should just let them all go at once. I think they should set the rules up front. Say, look, if you want to follow these rules, you can go live and just let them all go. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, I don't I don't know how it works when when multiple of the same. Want to do this a similar ETF? It's not something. There's like there's industry experts that would be able to know that that specific process way more than I would. Do, I mean, would you expect a supply shock when they are unveiled on the market? Do you think there would be a lot of demand for this? I think there's gonna be a lot of demand uh, because, I mean, as an example, I, I talked about. I remember we talked about the microstrategy thing where, mm. you know, like if it doesn't, if if an ETF, like GBTC trades over the counter, right? So it, mm. not only is it not an ETF, it doesn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange, it doesn't trade on NASDAQ, it just trades over the counter. Uh, and so for example, I have different model portfolios and one of them uses M1 Finance, which is a good platform, but they can only go on the major exchanges. And so I couldn't even have GBTC in that account. Whereas my other brokerage, Interactive Brokers, I can go ahead and buy GBTC. Uh, whereas I, I'd, I'd rather ha- I'd also want to have that in my M1 Finance account, but because uh-huh. I, I couldn't do that, instead I, I bought MicroStrategy back in like August 2020 because they you know became a, a Bitcoin allocation essentially, uh, and so that was one I was able to actually access on that particular platform. So if if there's a Bitcoin ETF that that then trades on a major exchange, uh, more people can can essentially access it than than they would uh, if they're not willing to buy over the counter products. Uh, and if they're not interested in having like a, a you know a exchange account or or something like that, and so it, it should increase overall demand, especially like uh, like uh, RIAs, like asset managers that that basically you know invest other people's money. An ETF makes it much easier to to, to be inserted as a slice into a diversified portfolio and say, okay, we're going to have a two percent Bitcoin allocation via this Bitcoin ETF uh, that that's backed up by. You know, BlackRock or Fidelity. We you know whatever, whoever ends up kind of getting that, 
Uh, and so that that gives them much more kind of comfort, I guess, um, and 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 potentially you know better liquidity and things like that. And so it, it should it should result. I mean, the Canadian one did very well for for that sort of reason. And you'd expect that the you know, American one would you know add a zero to that probably, mm. or or at least you know if there's like five of them, then you know they it gets distributed across multiple ones, whichever ones end up being the popular ones. All right, I do want to go back to bonds actually. I got a question on this. Somebody asked, and, and it's something I'm th- I, I'm like thinking about, but based on you know talking to you and talking to Greg, and I've got a follow up based on my conversation with Greg. But is there a looming corporate bond debt crisis? Potentially. So if if yields keep rising, if inflation goes up and yields rise, mm-hmm. that can put a lot of pressure on credit markets, and so. A number of people have been talking about the possibility of yield curve control, including me, where the Fed can go in and prevent long-term treasuries from rising. But a couple of us, like me, have been pointing out that they're unlikely to do that unless something breaks. So it could be that the treasury market breaks, uh, or it could be the credit markets break. And so, for example, if you look back at Q4 2018, we had a big sell-off in asset prices, especially uh, you know growth stocks. Uh, and Powell did his famous Powell pivot where he said, you know, we're, basically that they, they, was all sparked by the Fed was raising interest rates. They, they were uh, reducing their balance sheet, their student quantitative tightening. They kept just saying it was on autopilot. We're going to keep doing this. Market freaked out. And then, and then Powell came and said, we're actually, you know, we're going to be more data dependent. We're going to slow down. We're going to, and that kind of eased the market. Uh, now, a lot of people think that Powell did that because the S&P 500 fell 20% really rapidly. But actually the bigger concern was that the junk bond market froze up. And so for six weeks, there were no junk bonds issued uh, in the United States. And, and I think probably a lot of other places too. Uh, and, and so basically that, that's, a, that's a, a bigger issue than, than uh, equity prices going up and down. Uh, and so when they, see, when they see the credit market freaking out, that, that forces the Fed to kind of intervene more. Uh, and so there is overall, there's a lot of corporate debt in the system relative to GDP in many countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the ways that they've been able to do that is because interest rates are so low. But if if interest rates keep pushing up, yeah. uh, that does put some pressure on them, uh, and so I would expect to see some turbulence in some of those areas. And last year, the Fed was able to uh, buy corporate bonds, even though they're technically not supposed to. They kind of they did a loophole where they they set up a special purpose vehicle with the Treasury. Uh, the Fed can't do it unilaterally; only only the Treasury and the and the Fed together can can do something like that. Uh, but even then, they didn't explicitly buy junk bonds, but they were they were like. Okay, we're going to buy investment grade bonds, but if they fell to junk like in this certain period, we're also willing to buy them. Uh, and they actually ended up not buying a ton, but it was enough to like soothe the market, where they basically the market took over and kind of pushed those yields back down. And so it, there is kind of a long term issue of debt. And if you look at an example, I often use is Japan, where they had a huge corporate debt bubble two decades ago. Yep. Uh, and part of the reason they stagnated is because they've been deleveraging that over time. So even as the Japan's sovereign debt, you know, skyrocketed, uh, their corporate debt as a percentage of GDP and absolute went down uh, because essentially you had a transfer from from you know the the private sector to the public sector. And so you know over time it is possible we see a similar thing in some of these other countries where corporate debt's pretty high and and you know you know should ideally flatline or start going down as a percentage of GDP. And whether or not that happens abruptly or or over time remains to be seen, partially dependent on what policymakers do. Have you seen Greg Foss's uh, theory on Bitcoin as insurance on the spread of bond yields? 
I don't think so, no. So it's uh, basically like he's saying if, if yields go up a ton, uh, that volatility would be good for Bitcoin. Yeah, he's saying that essentially you can use Bitcoin as an insurance against it. Yeah, potentially. It's, it's, it's one of those tricky things because if you have a volatility event that causes illiquidity, like we mm-hmm. had in March 2020, yeah. uh, then Bitcoin can go down with everything else, sometimes even more because it's Bitcoin. Whereas if you have other types of issues where it's not a liquidity issue, but it's a solvency issue, that's generally good for those hedges. And so as an example, if you use gold, uh, you know, back in that sell-off in, in 2018 that I talked about, gold did very well uh, because it wasn't a liquidity issue. It was like a, it was like a yield, uh, you know, basically there was like a, a variety of issues, but liquidity wasn't really one of them. And so something like gold was able to do well. Whereas in, in, in March 2020, gold sold off with everything else because it was a liquidity issue and people had to force sell certain things. And so in a similar way to, that for Bitcoin, if there's like a solvency issue, Bitcoin is likely to do pretty well. Uh, if there's a liquidity issue, then, then Bitcoin can temporarily be correlated to other assets in the market. But I'd have to see the specific theory about, about the, you know, the, the credit spread. Do you know what? I'm going to ping it to you. I'll literally ping it to you and then I can ask you about it next time. Okay, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about. We'll see what we can get through. <laughs> Firstly, I'm just going to go with a wild out there one. What do you think of NFTs? Uh, so yeah, I, I was asked that on on Real Vision too. I Basically, know. it's I mean it's an interesting technology. Like it's it, it's I'm always open for for ways that artists can get paid for their creations, whether it's music, whether it's video, like uh, visual files. Um, there's a couple issues. One is it's actual like you know a, the problem with digital art is that you can get an identical version rather than just like a, a similar copy. And so, for example, uh, you know, if someone has a Van Gogh, uh, you know, another person can get a, a very good replica of Van Gogh, but it's not, it's not identical down to the brushstrokes, right? It's, it's, very, it's, it's very similar to an untrained eye, uh, but it's, it's not an identical product. The problem with a digital uh, you know, NFT is that you can you literally have the identical JPEG uh, and you just don't have it like, you know, signed, essentially. Uh, and the other issue that I point out is that basically you're also betting on the underlying blockchain that it exists on because, you know, if like say there's like a Picasso painting, but they, he he like used the wrong kind of paint. And so that's like just like dissolving faster than expected. And so they actually and that happens sometimes they're they're like, yeah, they're, no, it's they're, just a great analogy. And and so you say, okay, I love Picasso, but like this, like the the canvas is bad, or like the paint's bad, and it's it's falling apart rapidly, and that would that would uh, take away from the the value of that Picasso. And so if your NFT is built on a blockchain, uh, you better hope that that blockchain, and if you're going to pay a million dollars for it or or tens of millions of dollars for it, you better hope that blockchain's around for the next fifty years, right? So uh, you, you know, based on how much you're paying for it, you you better hope that that blockchain is because. Be, continues to be the leader in that in that field. And so it might not have to be the, the biggest blockchain. It might be, say, the biggest utility blockchain, uh, but it better not get displaced by competitors over the next 10, 20 years. Otherwise, that really takes away the value of that of that product. There's another thing where traditional art, there's the, usually, unfortunately, living artists don't sell their art for a ton of money. It's usually when they pass away yep. and then their art starts getting exponentially more expensive. And that's partially because you just proved scarcity. Right, so that artist can't make any more, uh, and so it, the over <laughs> and over like that. Yeah, <laughs> and so those, like those yeah, those go up a ton, <laughs> and so we have the op- overall question: like, if an artist does an NFT, could they issue another one on a different blockchain? Uh, yeah. Could they just re- there's all sorts of issues like that, and so overall, you know, it, if you if you step back for a second and say, okay, 
people love collectibles. Uh, we're obviously willing to pay money like uh, for things that are worth more than their materials. Uh, and everything is being digitized. It, it would make sense that there's some foray into digital collectibles. That makes sense. Uh, but then the question becomes, you know, what, like, how do they work? What are they built on? Uh, you know, what is their mechanism to ensure that it's actually scarce? Uh, and then also, is it a mania? Are the prices reasonable? Comp- you know, what is the probability that that you know most of these are going to hold their value over the next five years? Well, some of them perhaps, uh, but you know, I think a lot of them are you know, not discernly priced, let's say. All right. I think we can do one more topic and then I'm going to let you go. Um, so nobody's talking about Tether anymore. The Tether FUD is over, which is amazing, really. Uh, I've just not heard. I can't even remember the last mention of Tether. It's all, it's all gone. So I, our, see the occasion, I see the occasional Twitter comment, but that's about it, yeah. Probably and I, I, I'm my, misinformed. Yeah, and my, my inbox is like... Uh, it, you know, before there was when that when that big article came out, is this, yeah. I got like a million tether questions, and I haven't gotten one, and I haven't gotten one in like two months. Well, I'm getting a lot of energy questions at the moment. People saying, "Can you just cover energy? Can you make a show about energy?" Which I am, I am going to do. But I think we are seeing a different type of fud, which is the governments will ban Bitcoin. Um, we've had whatever Mike Green wants to talk about, but Ray Dalio specifically. Um, what are your feelings on that? And also, how, actually, how did your uh, debate slash discussion with Mike go? I haven't watched it yet, but I'm going to certainly watch it. Uh, so I enjoyed it. I mean, that one had an institutional audience. Uh, yeah. And so it, it was actually, we, we've structured that more as a conversation uh, than a debate. But of course, we had opposite sides of the conversation. And so uh, I think it probably it was similar in tone to when he discussed with Nick Carter. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I haven't got a chance to listen to it back. So um you know, it's it's a basic conversation about the the risks and and kind of defenses against those risks. Like he'd point out a risk, I would say, well, here's why I don't view that as a primary issue. Uh, and so we kind of walked through that. For like it was only like an hour or two, so we didn't we didn't exactly cover everything. Uh, but I'd recommend people checking out whenever it's. I, I think it's going to be posted on YouTube at some point if it hasn't already. Um, and so overall, with the with the government banning uh, FUD, this has been a long known concern within the Bitcoin community. It's not like you know people haven't thought about it. Uh, and of course, we have seen smaller countries you know do different attempts to try to ban it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have kind of issues there where like you know people often point out that it ends up trading at a premium there, yeah. uh, and so it actually doesn't doesn't re- reduce the price. Um, uh, the latest big one is is India looking to to ban it. They had they had kind of a failed attempt before, where the Supreme Court kind of knocked it down. This is like attempt mm. number two, uh, and so we'll see how that goes. So, in one sense, you know, a country can't ban Bitcoin; they can just ban themselves from Bitcoin. Uh, they can just yeah, exclude themselves from it. Yeah, and they can only do it part of the way because it's really hard to enforce because it's just information. You're banning information, which is really challenging to do. Now, the the big concern that people have is what what if the United States bans it? And unlike, say, India banning it, if the United States somehow came out with a ban, it would be, at least in the intermediate term, bad for the price because you'd have forced selling. You know, it's not like it's not like India holds a massive amount of Bitcoin. Uh, it's not like there's like multi multi you know billion dollar institutions that it just you know have to just divest billions of dollars of Bitcoin. And so, if the United States did it, that would be you know likely a, a massive price shock to the protocol. And so we, we would see how that would develop. And now the problem with the United States banning it is it's hard to do because you know essentially a ban on Bitcoin is a capital control, uh, so that's that's tricky. And it's also you're banning information, right? So you have to mm-hmm. get that through. You know, you basically would you would have constitutional challenges 
against that. So overall, I view it as there's a spectrum of options, right? So on one hand, the and the direction they've gone into their credit is to say, okay, Bitcoin's here. It's a digital commodity, so we're going to tax it like a digital commodity. Uh, we want to, you know, they want to know who's trading it around, which is natural. Governments always do that, and so mm-hmm. uh, and that's actually one thing I talked about with Mike is basically that you know a lot of the criticisms about Bitcoin privacy could be leveled at cash, right? The the cat, you know, governments aren't super popular about cash either, and so. Uh, there's been basically KYC laws and things like that. And so there, those are some of the more benign restrictions uh, on it. Then you you can kind of go up and say, okay, uh, you know, what if they say, okay, we're not going to ban it, but we're going to put all sorts of limitations on institutions being able to own it. Uh, and and so that's a that's a much easier thing to enforce because you're you're you know, no major institution is going to do something that's against the law. Uh, and so you're not you're not it's 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 enforceable. Uh, and it's it's you know less freedom restricting on, on individuals and less capital controls. And they just say, okay, if you're if you're a fund over this much, uh, we consider it too risky to have Bitcoin, and therefore you know screw you. Uh, now that's that's still a pretty extreme option, right? Because they mm-hmm. you know that they, they can put limits on you know how much can be held in order for it to be like open to like you know kind of criticism. They they can do things like that. Uh, so those that's the more realistic thing I'd be concerned about is basically things that slow down institutional adoption, because that that would overall be one of the what would affect one of the the demand drivers. Uh, and whereas an outright ban seems very challenging, and it's it's one of those things where one of the arguments is that the bigger it gets, the more likely it is to get banned. Uh, but the the alternative view that I've taken, especially you know since my my articles back in like mid 2020. Uh, was that the bigger it gets, in some ways, the harder it gets to ban, right? Yeah. Because once once the donor class owns it, so right, the, all the political donors own it. Uh, once there's like Bitcoin senators, uh, you know, once it's firmly entrenched in Fidelity, NYDIG, BlackRock, uh, you know, someone has a Bitcoin ETF, maybe, uh, you know, there's there's like banks custodying it. There's let's say Coinbase goes public, and then you have this big you know entity built around it. You have you have uh, you know uh, corporations with it on their on their balance sheet. That gets much harder to outright ban because then you're you're going after the the capital of of you know, the donor class, and so that that actually becomes very unlikely. And so my my main concern is is kind of watching these other types of activity that are that are lower on that spectrum uh, that would that would essentially put brakes on institutional adoption and things like that. I think those are the more realistic concerns to to keep an eye out for. Also, we had the scare during the end of the Mnuchin's period where they were kind of pushing uh, mm-hmm. things that would make self-custody harder. And so I think I think the bigger concern is around the, around the margins rather than something like, you know, it's illegal for Americans to own Bitcoin. Uh, and, but, it, you know, it, people have to keep everything on their radar because there are countries like India that, that are pushing forward with that sort of thing. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to play out. I think I think that's the one of the most interesting things to track this year with the increase in adoption. But my view is like, if the it, it would be cutting off your nose to spite your face for the US to ban it because so much of the wealth of Bitcoin is now held in the US. Exactly, and that's that's economically some of the, damaging. That's, and that's some of the education that that people have been using, and that's also like. Like uh, that's that's part of what I say that the bigger it gets, the the yeah. more wealth you're destroying if you try to if you try to ban that. And so you know, a lot. I basically have to hope that regulators realize that and that they see that the United States owns a ton, Europe owns a ton. You know that that them trying to ban it would actually 
you know, in many ways hurt their own citizens, their own institutions yeah. by reducing the price of an asset, at least temporarily, that a lot, a lot of their people own. Do you know that's a whole bunch of stuff I haven't got through there. I wanted to talk to you about network effects. I wanted to talk to you about fee-based security. We're just going to have to wait till next month. Lynn, yeah. as ever, it's amazing. I've learned so much. You're the best. You really are the best. Hap- Thank happy you. to keep coming on. Yeah, this is amazing. People love it. Um, the show last last month did something like 90,000. Everyone has wow. gone higher. We better crush 100,000 this time. <laughs> Listen, have an amazing month. Um, I'm sure I'm going to see you everywhere and talk to you before then, but appreciate you coming on. Everybody loves your show that you're doing here, so thank you so much. Yep, thanks for putting it together. Okay, I know you love that. There's no point asking you what you think of that because I know what you all think of Lynn Alden. I see your comments on YouTube. I see your DMs. I see your emails. I know you all love her as much as I do. I think she's amazing. I love making these shows with Lynn. Now, where do we go from here? Is a Bitcoin ETF about to open the floodgates? Is inflation going to smack us in the face when they release everyone from lockdown prison? Is anything that is happening right now not ultra-fucking-bullish for Bitcoin? Now, I love having Lynn on. Listening to her helps me really connect the dots of the macro world, which can be a bit daunting. And I got a chance to ask a few questions from listeners that wrote in. So thanks for sending in those great questions. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it really worked, though. So I'm probably not going to keep doing that. So don't feel obliged to send questions because I might... I'm going to ask her in the future. But if you do have any questions to me or feedback, you can reach out. You can jump into my Telegram group or you can always hit me up on email. Hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I will try and get back to you ASAP. If you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That always helps with the rankings. We reached our highest point in the US charts this week. We hit number 13, which is incredible. Number 13 finance podcast. Amazing. And we're a good eight places above Peter Schiff. Ha ha ha. Take that Schiff. Okay, a couple of notes. Firstly, Defiance is going to be taking a break for a couple of months. We're going to be relaunching that with a brand new executive producer, Edwina Stott. She's already made a couple of shows for us, but that's going to be relaunched in June. It's going to be under the new Hijack brand. Basically, Hijack Media is going to be the brand, the mother brand for everything I'm doing. Never read it's going to become Hijack News, so keep an eye out for all of that. If you do want to register for my newsletter, you can right now at neveredit.com. Outside of that, have a great week. I've got an interesting show coming from you on Friday. Love you all and see you all then. 